together. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word tonight. You would anoint us by your Holy Spirit to be able to receive it in the way that we desire to, as your very words to us, words of life, Lord, words that are going to outlive the heavens and the earth, words that will never disappoint as we allow you to give them a living place within our lives and a place of obedience. So we pray for the work of your Spirit that is just right for this passage that we're studying this evening that will take these wonderful, wonderful truths, build them into our relationship with you, build them into our spirit so that they can impact us now and then be brought to our remembrance by your spirit as needed for the rest of our pilgrimage here. And we pray and we ask these things of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. We're glad you're here tonight. John's Gospel, chapter 15 this evening, Sunday night, through, through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And we remember that as we come to these chapters in John, chapters 13 through 17, that they are Jesus' instruction to the disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And they're in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem as he delivers this teaching to them. That's why it's known as the upper room uh, discourse. And the purpose of this particular teaching is in order to prepare the disciples for a coming separation. In chapter 13, Jesus spoke to them of the fact that he would be leaving them, departing from them. This concerned them, uh, greatly alarmed them and uh, that all they'd known of him was to know him face to face, physically in their presence. This was going to change everything. And so Jesus now instructs them and us on how to relate to God, walk with God, what we need to hear now during this now 2,000 year separation between Jesus' ascension into heaven and as we await uh, the rapture of the church. And so he continues in that same theme and we pick it up in chapter 15, verse 12. Jesus is speaking and he said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that, uh, that I have heard from my Father, uh, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you these things I command you, that you love one another. In this passage, he, Jesus declares us to be uh, his uh, friends. And the word that he uses for friend there in the Greek as it's translated for us, it means friend, it means beloved, it means uh, a companion. In the ancient world, it was the word that was used most often uh, to, uh, of the groom's best man at his wedding. And so it speaks of someone who is one's very best uh, friend. It is amazing to think of the fact that uh, that is how Jesus views us in our relationship with him. 
we know what his relationship uh, means to us. But here we get a glimpse at what our relationship with him means to him. And uh, I wouldn't presume to believe that he would consider me to be a friend uh, unless he said it, as he says it right here. Um, But he does say it. And it's important for us to realize that. I think because some of us might be hesitant to um, accept that kind of intimacy in our relationship with God. Uh, sometimes we can be raised even within the realm of, uh, of Christianity, within a good, uh, strong uh, Christian church, and we come to know God as uh, infinite and omnipresent and all-powerful and, and, uh, and all of these different kind of titles that are being given, given to Him and and all of it produces this awe and this humility in our hearts. And there's even the nurturing sometimes of a sense of distance between uh, us and him by virtue of these, these characteristics. But, and those things are all wonderful in our lives, but God knows that we need to uh, know him, Jesus does, uh, as a friend as well. You notice in verse 15 how Jesus differentiates between a servant and a friend. Now, we are a servant of Jesus, but we're also a friend. And here's the differentiation. In those days, it wasn't uncommon. Uh, Slavery was a very, very big part of the Roman Empire. Uh, Millions and millions and millions of slaves during uh, during that period in history. So it wasn't unusual for uh, people to own slaves. And the closest thing that we have to that in our culture is somebody who is in a position of uh, maybe being an employee to you if you own a, a, a business. And so, uh, and, uh, and a servant or an employee doesn't know what his master is doing. In other words, there's, there's a great limitation. There are boundaries Uh, strict boundaries typically in that relationship. And the more laws that you have, like in a state of California, I mean, the boundaries become so much so that the relationship between the employer and the the employer and the employee becomes almost sterile in trying to keep yourself out of a, a, a court of uh, of law. And so a, a, a master would not reveal to a servant uh, anything much more than, uh, than what it was that he expected of him uh, as a, uh, a servant. And so a master wouldn't take his servant into his confidence or reveal his feelings or his plans in life with a servant uh, as Jesus is doing with the disciples here in chapters 13 through uh, 17. He calls us friends because all things he tells us that he heard from the Father, he has made known to us. One of the characteristics of a close friendship uh, is that a person feels um, uh, able, feels free to reveal uh, the things that are most important to us, our emotions, our, f- our future plans, these kind of things. You just don't go up to somebody at a bus stop and start telling them these things. 
has to be a relationship that's meaningful to go there in a conversation. And that's exactly where Jesus is going in this conversation with, uh, with the disciples. They knew about his coming resurrection. They knew about his crucifixion that was coming. And he shared with them about his ascension and all of these great things that are in this chapter. And so uh, we are still servants of God. That is wonderful. But we're not merely servants. We're also uh, friends, because we possess a uh, intimacy with the heart of God and the mind of God that can only be uh, the experience of a friend. You notice too in verse 16, and it is important to notice that God has chosen us as his friends. Now, how crazy gracious is that? If, if you, if you knew all that you know about you, and you do, but I mean hypothetically speaking, would you choose you as a friend? How flaky we are, how unfaithful we can be, how conditional we can be in our, uh, our love, how distant we can be in a relationship. I mean, it, it, uh, God didn't get a bargain in choosing any of us uh, as a friend in this regard. And yet exa- that's exactly uh, what he, he does here. And, uh, and by the way, if you thought of yourself, yes, I see, I see exactly why God chose me. I see all of these great things that I bring to my relationship with him, and he's so blessed to have me, then um, you need to be more thankful for his choosing you than all of, of the rest of us. And so uh, the, God's choice of us for uh, not only salvation, but choice of us for personal relationship with him to make us his friend uh, ought to be something that always keeps us in uh, awe. It always ought to be a mystery to us. I think that our friend Gail Irwin has the classic statement on this. He said, I heard him say one time, he said, the only thing that makes me question God is his choice of me. And I think that all of us can understand that in our own uh, relationship uh, with God. And so to be chosen as a friend, of course, it is a great uh, privilege. And uh, of course, it doesn't happen except that there are both sides to a relationship that's important to be uh, faithful to. You notice what, in verse 16, uh, what he does promise to us uh, that will come out of that, this relationship with him will be a fruit, spiritual fruit will come out of the relationship. You can't have spiritual fruit without relationship. We saw that last time it's in, in earlier in chapter 15. And, uh, and then a supernaturally effective uh, prayer life comes out of that. We like to talk with, uh, with our friends. And so it, understanding this about God that he is a friend and we are a friend to him is going to impact our Christian ministry in a way that, uh, that we wouldn't know if we didn't understand that this is the kind of relationship we have with him. And then it's going to affect our prayer life because it lets us realize um, how eager he is to talk anything and everything over uh, with us in terms of our lives. And so uh, Jesus speaks to us about his side uh, of this relationship that we have uh, with him. But of course, a relationship is a two-way thing. And, and so Jesus in this passage also instructs us on how we can be a friend to him and how best to express our friendship to him. We're so grateful for the relationship. 
We're so grateful for the friendship. And, uh, and so how precious is then the, the instruction, the revelation from his own lips about how we can in turn be a, a, uh, this kind of a friend to him. Our side uh, of the friendship, how we can be the best friend to Jesus is given to us here in this passage as well. In verse 14, he tells us by simply obeying his uh, commandments. You notice in in verse uh, 14 there that Jesus does not uh, say um, there, uh, you are, uh, I am your friend if you, but he, he says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Uh, he is not hanging the relationship over our heads. Uh, he's not going to abandon the relationship if we uh, are, are not what we're supposed to be in this. But here he tells us now uh, how uh, we can show a, a, a commitment to the relationship as well. He's already shown his commitment to the relationship and his death upon the cross uh, for our sins. So the disciples are definitely going to be wondering. They felt they had a friendship with him for these three and a half years of his public ministry. And then how in the world are we going to maintain this friendship? How are we going to show friendship to you now in this separation uh, where you're not going to be physically present with us anymore? And God said, if you want to do that, Jesus says, just simply obey my commandments. And I will receive that as as an expression of your your loyalty and, uh, and your friendship uh, with me. And so the obeying uh, uh, Jesus uh, and obeying his word and all of these things. Of course, any friendship that means anything to us is going to have tests of loyalty. There'll be temptations to uh, do things that we know would damage the relationship. There'll be temptations that we know uh, to, to neglect the relationship, to begin to take it for granted. And those are the same temptations that we can have with Christ in obedience to his commandments, uh, to do the things he's told us that are important to us is one of the best ways that we have to show him of how much we appreciate uh, this uh, friendship and we value it. You notice another way that we can practically express our friendship toward Jesus is by loving one another as Christians. And uh, that's something he frames the entire section here. Uh, with that same thought as he begins it there in verse 12 and he ends it uh, there in verse uh, 17, to love one another. Of course, Jesus has a great concern as the head of any family would, a great concern for the unity of the family. So obey my commandments and if you really want to show uh, and, and, and express your love to me in this relationship, then love Uh, uh, love my disciples, love uh, one another as uh, Christians. And so in our individual lives tonight, we might just assess it in terms of application and say, if the depth of my love, the appreciation, the loyalty to the relationship that I have with Christ, if that is uh, to be expressed in loving one another as Christians, um, then how much and to what degree uh, is, uh, is our life uh, 
based in, in obedience to uh, that commandment. We really do need to love one another as Christians in uh, this fallen world. We're very far away from home. We all know the challenges that we face as human beings on this earth, but then Christians on, on top of that, and we need each other. I don't have a tendency to get up in, in, in the teaching and see uh, necessarily the implication of trends that are going on uh, in the world, certainly not bringing up all of them, uh, because a lot of the, you don't come to church to be depressed, and, uh, and I'm not a f- running away from reality, but a lot of times we think it's going to turn into this, and then God does something entirely different. But anybody, any Christian with our hearts open and our eyes open, our spirit open to what's going on in the world and in this country can recognize uh, that we are as Christians being uh, uh, systematically marginalized by power. I'm talking about uh, people in positions of power in the United States to marginalize us uh, for the purpose of minimizing influence And there's a real target that is on us at this time. And so not waiting until we're in the position of a Christian in North Korea or in some camp somewhere in China to to appreciate and love one another and know how much we need one another, but to still within some margins within the United States of America because of our Christian heritage to recognize I ought to get on the ball with that now. And rather than being forced um, into that, I, uh, there was a block of my childhood that, I, that included living in quite a few uh, foster homes. Some of them were very good and some of them were very not so good. And uh, as long as I was with my twin brother, as long as they did not separate uh, us, as long as, uh, as he was there, I was okay because I knew that he loved me and I loved him. He had my back and I had his back. And, uh, and that's very important uh, in life. And Jesus would say, if you really want to show your friendship toward me, love my people, love my children. And then to the, uh, to the, the, um, the model of how to do it, he tells us in verse 12, is I have loved you. You say, how in the world do I... Uh, you know, love uh, other Christians and, and, uh, and uh, love one another in, in others in the body of Christ. And Jesus said, just take what I bring to you in our relationship, the things that I lavish on you, patience, uh, faithfulness when you're not faithful, Uh, being with you, a comfort, all of these things, everything that you have a long history with from me to you, and then just be that to other people uh, in the body of Christ. It doesn't have to be uh, the reading of a 600-page book or something like that uh, in order to get uh, to, to understand that. In verse 18, Jesus shifts gears here in terms of his, the subject matter that he's uh, addressing for preparing the disciples and us for this 2,000 year and running physical separation from Jesus by now talking about um, persecution. And he warns us of the persecution we can expect in the world because of our relationship with him and uh, and how to maintain perspective in the middle of that 
uh, persecution, how to interpret it um, properly. And so in verse 18, Jesus wants us to know, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And so he tells us here, you individually, tells us as a church, tells every Christian in the world, but he tells you and I individually tonight that if the world hates us, to remember that it hated him before it hated us. And when we experience that uh, persecution of the world, the rejection of the world, uh, Jesus says, remember very quickly that it hated me long before uh, it hated you. And I think that this is intended to really uh, sober us up as Christians in this regard. Again, we live in a country where we have a Christian heritage here, so it's not nearly as rough as other parts of the world for Christians to be in, in terms of persecution, but the persecution uh, does occur. And so it's, it's intended to um, refine our expectations of the Christian life. There are more blessings to the Christian life than we could ever list, and yet uh, with those blessings, there is going to be persecution. We will lose friends. People will attack us. And if I come into a, my, a Christian life uh, uh, thinking that everyone is going to think better of me by virtue of becoming a Christian, then I've, I've set myself up to be stumbled and uh, for, for great uh, disappointment. And, and to realize that the world today, both Jew and Gentile alike, uh, I'm convinced would kill Jesus just as surely as it did 2,000 years ago. Uh, they would just have him uh, assassinated because his life and his teaching would, would be as great a threat to uh, the corruption in religion and the corruption in government as ever it was in the world 2,000 years ago. Christ hasn't changed in 2,000 years. The heart of man has not changed in 2,000 uh, years. And if it's a choice between being faithful to Jesus and hearing his praises and, and also being persecuted as a result of that as opposed to having everyone in the world like me but being unfaithful to Christ, then, uh, it, then it's a very, very easy choice. And so Jesus is telling us, don't be alarmed by the world's uh, hatred or its persecution or its rejection. It's an honor to be persecuted for uh, righteousness, for being like Christ uh, in, in the world and because it means that we're on the right side of things and we're in very, very good company. We're in Jesus' company. And so Jesus accepted the hatred of the world as a matter of course, and we have to do the same uh, thing. You notice in verse 19, he tells us the second thing we need to understand in this regard. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so another reason for this persecution and rejection is because we are not of this world. We've been chosen out of this world uh, by Jesus. And the world speaks of 
uh, a worldly system, uh, individual people who desire to live as if God uh, does not exist, the God of the Bible, or uh, to, to live as if God's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad are not binding in any way and, and can be uh, uh, disregarded. It's a world that is uh, under the devil and is in rebellion uh, to God. And so we're not a part of the world. We're not a part of the system. We once were, but now we're a part of uh, God's kingdom and, and thus we're different. And the interesting thing about it is the world doesn't like that kind of different. They like a lot of kinds of different but they don't like the kind of different that is like Christ and, and, and reveals us to be obvious citizens of another kingdom. And so you, uh, there is that bullying that will go on, the bully nature, it's just a terrible thing that, that young girl just breaks our hearts who committed suicide as she was beaten up in a schoolyard here in the United States of America, put out on social media, and, and it hurt her so much that she went and she took her life, and she wasn't protected by the people that were in positions to uh, protect her. But this bullying, if it's not watched in anybody's heart, the world is a bully, and, uh, and it's not just these incidents that are so individual. You look at how the world will endeavors to bully Christians, bully uh, anything that is different from them in, in, with this kind of, a, of a, a distinction. I remember as a young boy where you would see these, uh, sometimes they would put in our classroom in, in elementary school, they would put like a big cardboard box and all of these little chicks in there. And there'd be one chick that was obviously a little bit different than the other chicks. And over the next course of the next two or three days, uh, they'd uh, peck every, flat, uh, every feather out of that chick. They just notice this is different than us. And then they attack it. And, and it's an ugly thing. And I wish it was only confined to uh, the animal kingdom in terms of, uh, of, uh, of that side of God's creation but it's a part of man as well. And these same things happen uh, spiritually, only there's a demonic ef effect where somebody, uh, where we, people look and they say, this person is different than me morally, different in their priorities. And so I want to uh, attack that. The world doesn't, uh, it notices it when it sees it, uh, doesn't understand it, it's not comfortable with, uh, with it in a Christian, and so they attack it as a threat, and uh, the Christian whose life is different morally and spiritually from them. Uh, Peter wrote in his uh, first epistle, he said, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that uh, he no longer should live uh, the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. 
in regard to these things, they, that is the world, they think it's strange that you don't run with them in the same flood of dissipation and as a result speaking evil uh, of you. And so this world uh, gives great, great lip service uh, to tolerance uh, when the fact of the matter is it is always at its core working uh, on a level of conformity in, in terms of power, in terms of uh, things morally and, uh, and uh, spiritually, but not in the sense of the, the, the kingdom uh, of God. And so they are only truly tolerant of what is of the world and everything else outside of that uh, it hates. It really is perverse that those who live godly, righteous lives should be considered the oddballs, could be considered the danger. I mean, you, we look in the United States of America today, how increasingly you hear the drumbeat that we are the danger. We are the people you have to watch. FBI sent out a, uh, and, and a whistleblower th- uh, brought it out in the last week or so uh, th- th- to mark uh, Roman Catholics as um, some hotbed or potential hotbed of terrorism. And, 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 and so you look and you say, what, a, what am I? I mean, I, I, I'm just living a life that is good. It's right before God. It only does good for other people. And, and, and yet, if I'm odd, I'll admit that. But it's in a good way that everybody ought to be odd. And yet, that, that isn't the way uh, that it is viewed. It's viewed as a threat. And... Uh, and it will be persecuted. And of course, uh, it, with all of it, there's no regrets for the child of God because of the blessing that is found uh, in that. And so the world's persecution, Jesus says, it reminds us that this world is not our home uh, and that we have obeyed his call to become a part of his kingdom. And now we're a part of his family and uh, his persecution as well. He goes on in verse 20, and declares, remember a word that I said to you, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. In terms of persecution, in other words, we cannot, and I mention this every so often, but we cannot expect the world to treat Christ in us any differently than it treated Christ in his physical presence 2,000 uh, years ago. And we put our faith in Christ, we're saved, and uh, that's not the end of what Christianity is all about, it's just the beginning, and the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, He begins to change us uh, supernaturally, and uh, making us more and more like Christ in our thinking and our doing and our speaking. The upside is that we're becoming more and more like Jesus every day. But as we become more and more like Jesus uh, every day, we're becoming a greater threat to the kingdom of darkness. Uh, We've become a greater threat in the same way that Jesus was a threat to the world, to corruption in the world 2,000 years ago, and it can mean uh, more and more persecution. But of course, being conformed into the image of Christ and, and all that is found there makes any persecution Uh, by the ungodly, completely worth it. And so this persecution simply means that Jesus says that the world sees Christ in us. It recognizes us to be uh, one of his servants. At the end of verse 20, he said, if they persecuted me, 
they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will keep yours also. This is very, very important to keep in mind uh, as Christians in the midst of persecution, and that is there are people who will listen. There are people who do watch our lives with the hope of seeing something different, to see a different kingdom, to see a different master in, in a person's uh, life. And so our lives, as is, is God is making these changes in our lives, there will be people who will listen to the gospel. They'll be attracted uh, to what it is that we have spiritually. And so often, just knowing that can get us through seasons of persecution. That yes, these people hate me, these people attack, these people ostracize uh, me, but over here, this person is listening. This person is seeing, or even if I don't know that, that there's a group of people uh, that aren't on the active persecution side of this thing, they're watching it, they're listening to the whole thing. And it is worth it to me, worth it to us, to endure that persecution by some group in the hopes that this other group will listen, and Jesus says they will, and they will obey and become Christians, and they will enter into the kingdom of God, as we did. It's amazing what we will endure in terms of persecution when we endure it not for ourselves, but we have the higher motivation of enduring it for the good of others that are around us. And it's this knowledge that makes persecution and rejection uh, worth it. And I've noticed through the years, uh, some of those that rejected me at first upon becoming a new Christian, you're going to lose friends. You're going to lose relationships. Some people are cordial about it, and some people are not so cordial about it. But then a year later, six months later, 20 years later, five years later, uh, the letter comes, the phone call comes, the something comes, and now they've got questions about this thing because they've seen it stick. They know it's not a flash in the pan uh, in, in our uh, lives, and that makes uh, all of this rejection uh, worth it. And we have to keep our eyes on that group, Jesus tells us as well. In verse 21, he said, but all these things uh, they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And so the fact that uh, they hate Christians reveals that they don't know God, that is, they don't know God the Father. This is uh, most especially important to recognize in religious uh, persecution. No one on the face of the whole planet truly knows God who persecutes Christians because no one who knows God uh, would ever do that. And so anyone who persecutes a believer for their simple faith in Jesus Christ is just revealing, Jesus said, they don't know uh, the Father. And of course, the greatest persecution that Jesus uh, endured in his public ministry was not from the sex, drugs, and rock and roll crowd. It was from a religious crowd that came uh, against him, that persecution. And the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, they claimed to love God, 
But then, uh, uh, and uh, on that ground of loving God, they hated Jesus, and Jesus declared uh, of them and such people today uh, that, that uh, you can't. You can't hate me and love God. And so they may have a relationship with a religious system. Uh, they may have a, uh, a relationship with a, um, a systematic theology, but they do not have a relationship with God. No one who is in relationship with God knows that God the Father will ever persecute uh, a Christian. And sometimes persecution at the hands of religious people is hard for us to understand, more hard than persecution by uh, secular people, but Jesus warns us not to be surprised by it. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. And so the world hates Jesus because he has, uh, has exposed their sin, and he's removed their excuses for continuing in sin. Very, very often in persecution against a Christian, it is born out of a very deep conviction concerning sin, a sense of guiltiness related to sin in the person who is doing the persecution. But they'll never say that. They'll never come up to you and say, you know, your life just makes me feel so guilty. It's so good. And I know I ought to be like you. And I just want you to know that's what's behind uh, uh, my mistreatment of you. No, they never will say that. And so Jesus tells us that very often that is what's going on. So again, we can be prepared for it and process this kind of thing uh, properly. Jesus, in his life and in his teaching, he defined sin, he confronted sin, he called on men to uh, repent of our sins, and, uh, and this makes every person who continues in sin rather than repenting and putting their faith in Jesus, responsible uh, for the life they live, responsible for their sin, responsible for the judgment that God uh, promises. And generally, uh, man doesn't like to hear that they're one day going to give an account before God uh, for the life that they have uh, lived. And so there will be a persecution related to that. And as we carry that same message of Christ into the world, uh, we're going to be hated for the very same reasons, especially if we uh, walk the talk and, 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 and live what we believe. We're living a life uh, in obedience to the word. We're living a life that testifies to the power of the Holy Spirit in, in this uh, Christian life. Again, uh, the fact that we can do it means that anybody can do it. Anyone can be born again. Anyone can uh, live the life that we're living in obedience to Christ. And so it makes the entire world around us responsible for continuing in a life of sin. And people don't like to hear that message and they'll let us know about it. It is kind of weird that the world hates the church uh, most often, not for the evil that's in it, but for the good that's in it. And this is the whole thing of in the end times, talking about uh, the, the days will be, uh, evil will be called good and good will be called evil. And here we are in these uh, days, at least in our Western world and in the United States of America. 
you look at the vitriol, you look at the hatred. I'm going to talk not on an individual level, but on a, on a national, on a state level, where the hatred that is directed, the persecution that is pointedly uh, directed toward Christian is, is not at all uh, for any evil that is in us, but for the good. And so holiness has always been a threat. Uh, to the worldly system. They recognize it for the threat that it is and uh, 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 to them and the threat that it is most of all to the sin that they love. That's the fear, is that, uh, is that uh, too many people will become like what a Christian is and then it, it will put uh, the sins that they want to engage in under some kind of a threat. In verse 23, Jesus continues and he said, he who hates me hates my father uh, also. And so uh, he goes even further here than he did in verse 21. He states that if someone hates Jesus, not only does he not know the father, but he hates uh, the father because Jesus and the father are identical. You can't separate between the two. Jesus said, everything that I taught Everything I did, I did in obedience to the instruction of the Father. There is not a, a sheet of paper width uh, 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 of a distance between the Father uh, and uh, the Son. You cannot hate the Son and uh, not hate uh, the Father. And again, this is being directed to the Jewish religious leaders in, in that day who claimed to love the Father but hate Jesus. Jesus says, it is not possible. You guys are so far away from understanding what this is all about and what God the Father is like and, and what it is that I uh, am like. In verse 24, Jesus said, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, uh, then they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. So Jesus, not only was he hated for his message, he was hated for his life, he was hated for his miracles because his miracles testified to the truthfulness of his teaching. And, and of his claims. And so his sinless life, uh, the perfection of his wisdom, find one fault in anything Jesus ever said. His sinless life, the perfection of his uh, wisdom makes man's rejection of him absolutely indefensible. And there's a recognition uh, related uh, to that. And the miracles themselves are cause for hatred. And then in verse 25, but this has happened that the world might be, word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. And so all persecution that we experience is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's promised, Old Testament, New Testament. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. And here, uh, John uh, quotes from either Psalm uh, 69 or Psalm uh, 35. And, and in this prophecy concerning the righteous and in this, in this world. And so Jesus said, it's, it's the fulfillment of prophecy, so it shouldn't uh, surprise us. And, uh, and this 
uh, whatever passage he is from the Psalms, whichever Psalm he's quoting, they're identical in this regard. It protected this rebellion and hatred of Jesus. And when Jesus is hated, he is always hated without a cause. Always hated that without a cause. They have hated me without a cause. There is no good reason for hating Jesus in this world. There's nothing about his life, nothing about his teaching. And when a person hates Jesus for his life and his teaching, that's not an indictment upon Jesus. It's an indictment upon the wickedness of the heart who would hate him for the life that he lived and the things that he uh, taught. And it helps us to know that. And Jesus reminds us of that. And verse 26, but when the helper has come, that is the Holy Spirit, whom I send to you, uh, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also shall bear witness because you have been with me from uh, the beginning. And so the Holy Spirit has a place, Jesus says here, in all of this persecution. And he, and he says, no matter how high the world, whatever part of the world we live in, no matter how uh, far up uh, persecution and hatred is ratcheted up against Christians collectively or Christian uh, individually in its persecution, uh, we are not to allow that persecution to silence us related to the gospel and being what God has called us uh, to be here uh, in the world, but to recognize he will give us the strength in that part of the harvest field to live for him and, and to continue to uh, minister for him. And whatever we need, whatever Whatever the difficulties or challenges of the environment, he will provide us with even more related to his Holy Spirit uh, to rise and rise above even that circumstance. The only, and one of the, the only reason you and I as Christians uh, sit in this room here tonight is because there are still more people in this world that are, are going to be saved. The fullness of the Gentiles hasn't occurred yet. And so the idea is, hey, the persecution occurs, but just expect a work of the Holy Spirit to be greater than that persecution. Don't go silent concerning this message. Everybody needs to hear uh, the gospel. And then he told us there in uh, verse 1 of chapter 16, these things I've spoken to you uh, that you should not be made to stumble. And what do, you, what do we stumble over? We stumble over things we don't see or we didn't see coming. He said, I'm telling you ahead of time. So when this happens to whatever degree in your life, it does not stumble you in your uh, relationship with God. It's going to happen to us. We shouldn't be uh, surprised. In verse 2, uh, Jesus said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God a service. So again, he returns to this religious persecution and the excommunication that occurred to Jews, Christians that be, Jews that became Christians in the early 
church and uh, to be excommunicated was a, a very serious thing, to be excommunicated from a Jewish synagogue uh, in, in, those, uh, in those days. And so we see uh, some of that uh, religious zeal and hatred even today where people can convince themselves that in murdering others, even in murdering Christians, uh, they are doing the will of God. You ever watch the persecution against Christians and you think to yourself, why us? Why aren't they killing the Buddhists? Why isn't that in the headlines every day? Why aren't they killing hundreds of millions of Hindus? around the world, or Muslims around the world? Why is it Christians that are the particular target of, of this kind of, uh, of violence by Hindus in India, by Muslims all over the world uh, uh, related to that? And, it, and it's all just as Jesus is, is declaring uh, here, uh, that where we are different from everything else in the world and even religious systems understand that and want to put that, uh, that light out. Verse three, and these things they, uh, they, do, uh, they will do to you because they have not known uh, the Father nor me. And so they, uh, they do these things claiming uh, uh, religious reasons for this persecution of Christians. And Jesus said, no, it just merely reveals they don't know the Father and they don't know uh, me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you remember that I told you uh, of them. And so when that happens in your life, you'll understand things aren't out of control. It's a part of being a Christian, this side of heaven. And then he closes off this thought uh, in the tail end here of verse four. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So Jesus did not instruct the disciples in this way concerning uh, persecution during the three and a half years of his public ministry in the way that he did here. He didn't need to. He bore the brunt of all of the persecution. But that was now going to change as he departed, departed in his ascension and now we become the body of Christ in the world. And so these same understanding of persecution and hostility towards Christians that marked Jesus in his public ministry, this perspective that he had of that persecution, now he takes that out of his own heart, knowing that he is going to be physically separate from us, and now he puts it into our hearts so that we can process it in the way that he did. And it's such an invaluable section of Scripture here. And the one to put in our noggins and to remember in those times in which we face persecution in our lives, whether we face it as, as a body of Christ as a whole in the United States or in the world or individually, to come back to this place to regain perspective and to understand what is really going on. It is rarely personal. The persecution is because of our identification with Christ and the motives are a, a multitude as Jesus lays them out here, a very, very 
blessed and important uh, equipping passage within this upper room discourse. Well, we'll enjoy the Lord's Supper tonight, and so if the worship team would come forward now, uh, we will worship the Lord as we consider these things that we've looked at tonight, and as we do this in remembrance of Him, to remember Jesus tonight, and if the men will come forward now and prepare to serve the Lord's Supper, as you receive the bread and the cup, it's in, in its own little uh, container, uh, hold the bread, and, uh, and uh, we will pray together, and then we will partake together, and then we'll do the same thing uh, with the grape juice. Let's uh, give some time now to remembering our Savior tonight.